Well, Merry Christmas. For those of you who aren't ready to hear that, Merry Christmas. <laughs> you have to start getting used to it at some point, right? Might as well be today. Uh, welcome uh, today to, to our family gathering here at Cultivate. Um, it's good to, to have you here with us. If, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Jay, and I, I get to help lead uh, this community. I'm very excited about that and what God is doing uh, in and us and among us and through us. We just ended a, a vision series, and last week we had heard a number of stories from people's lives of how God is at work in, in uh, some exciting ways, some unexpected ways, some way, ways that are, are uh, bittersweet, but uh, God is at work nonetheless, and it's, it's a joy to see Him and what He's doing through us and to get to be a part of that. We are, are starting a new series today uh, that we're calling Glory in the Highest, which is our Advent or Christmas series. And that term, glory in the highest, or glory to God in the highest, is what the angels sing to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus. We actually mentioned that in the song that we just sang together. So over the next three weeks, uh, plus Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing uh, four different songs that appear in the first two chapters of Luke. So there are four songs that are sung, and they're traditional Christmas songs, uh, the Latin term for them is called canticles. They are songs that are outside the book of Psalms, but they're sung as part of the life and the, the experience of the church. And, and if you kind of maybe grew up in more of a, a traditional church, you may have sung these as part of your experience in, in the Advent season. And so we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks uh, the songs from Zechariah, Mary, Simeon, and then finally the angel's song on Christmas Eve. And they're, song, they're sung during the Advent season. And the word Advent means arrival. Uh, and so it's the coming of something that we long for. That's what the word Advent means. 2,000 years ago, Israel as a nation was waiting expectantly for the arrival of someone who was going to come and save them. And uh, as Mandy mentioned earlier, from the time that the last prophet said that this Messiah, this Savior, this King was on His way till the time that Jesus shows up is about 400 years. And then God comes and He finally does this announcement of Jesus' birth and He appears to all these various people to tell them the good news. And each one of those people breaks out in some kind of song because of their joy. And those are the songs that we're going to be looking at. It's a great time to, to do this, by the way, because those songs are indicating that God is once again speaking to His people. He's at work. He's moving. I don't know about you, but sometimes, especially in this season, you can feel like God's been silent for a long time. I won't make you raise your hand if that's you, but maybe you're feeling in this season that He's been distant or that you wonder if He's present. You don't know that He's near. And here's, here's what you need to know. You can... In fact, have hope that God is with you, that He's for you, that He's in control, that He isn't silent, that He actually wants to speak to you. And in fact, He wants to speak to you by His Spirit this very day, even this morning. Uh, God does that. He speaks to you through Jesus and through His Holy Spirit. And He's present in this room because we are His people. And God is, is in our hearts by faith of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to talk about that in a bit. And so he's present here this morning. So if you feel like God has been distant for a season for you, or you, you've never experienced him being near to you, I want you to know this morning that he wants to be near to you. He wants you to know who he is. In fact, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and you'd give us the words of life that we need to hear. I just I recognize, God, even before you, that I don't have the ability to change anyone's hearts, let alone my own. And I'm not eloquent enough to trick people into thinking something that isn't true of you. God, you need to reveal it. And so God, come and, and minister to us today. Be close to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Today we're going to be looking at Zechariah's song. And it's funny because each of these songs, as you look at them, focuses on a different aspect of Jesus' birth. And particularly, it addresses some fundamental question that we all have. 
And we're not like Israel in that we're not waiting for the Messiah to appear. Jesus already came, but we may be waiting for God to answer a specific question that we have in our hearts. And this is the primary question that Zechariah's song addresses. And maybe this is where you're at this morning. But this is, this, this is the, the question. Is God a God of justice? Will He set the world right again? And will He save us? So we need to know the answer to that question. We need God to reveal it to us because we live in a culture that's increasingly cynical of God's power to save. Do we not? Uh, in fact, one of the most um, blatant, obvious examples of that is the fact that we have seen over and over and over again in the last decade or so uh, the number of mass shootings increase exponentially. Right? Right? And it's interesting because the, the news of this hits, and when it used to hit, it would make ripples and waves in our culture for weeks, if not months. I can't believe that happened. How are we going to resolve this? What are we going to do? And then as the frequency of those shootings has increased over time to the fact where it seems like they happen once a month, what happens? We... we the, the news of it kind of washes over us again, and, and it's almost like we... We, we just go back to our normal business and we go, well, God can't do anything about that. It just seems to be a fact of life now. In fact, our, our culture is, is getting more and more cynical of God's activity. And here, I want to show you, this is the, one of the um, articles or, or things that, that came in this week. Was, uh, do we have that up there? I think we do, right? As part of it? No, I think I, maybe I forgot it. <laughs> I think it's my fault. There's a headline that came out in the New York Daily News that said this, God isn't fixing this. And it had uh, on the borders a series of politicians that all said something along the lines of the people who, who went, uh, had to undergo this, this, ma- this latest shooting at a Christmas party in San Bernardino, California, that, that our, heart, our thoughts and our prayers are with them and that we are praying for them. And the headline was basically saying, don't give us your platitudes anymore. We need answers. God isn't going to be the one to fix this. It's got to be us. We have to do something about that. And, and here's the, the, the deal. Zechariah lived in a time and a culture that was saying many of the same things. When is he going to show up? When is God going to do something about this? When is it all going to get fixed? Who's going to save us? And the answer that our culture increasingly gives us is that it's not going to be God. And it's certainly not going to be God's people. It's got to be something else. And it's, it's funny because as soon as you remove that, then all of the answers come to play and everyone disagrees about what the answer is going to be. Some people say it's less guns and some people say it's more guns and some people say it's more restrictions and regulations and all, all these various things. We're looking to all these things to be the savior of a situation that we know in our hearts we can't fix. See, Christmas is the best reminder we have that God is able to fix the world. But it's not going to look the way that we thought that it would look But we need to know that when Jesus came into this world as the very presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, He was coming into the world as a down payment on a new creation when one day sin will no longer exist. And Zechariah's song is all about what God is going to do through this Savior. So it's funny, we mentioned this already, but after nine months of being unable to speak, because he... Zechariah at first didn't believe, like many of us and many in our culture, we don't believe the news that God gives us that He will in fact save us. And so Zechariah had to go without speaking for nine months. And when he finally was able to speak at the birth of his son, this is what he says. This is the first recorded words that we have of Zechariah after the birth of his one and only son. And it's going to be in Luke 1, verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people to redeem and redeem them. 
has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, speaking to his son, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. To give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising of the sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And verse 80 says, And the child John grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. See, it's one of the amazing things to note right out of the gate is the fact that Zechariah, as he's singing this song, points to the one who ultimately will save. Um, Which, I was reading this again for the first time in a long time, and there was something really weird that struck me. Did you catch it? Who is this song about, primarily? It's about Jesus, right? What major life event just occurred in John's life for him and his wife, or Zechariah's life for him and his wife Elizabeth? The birth of a son. Do you know how long they've been waiting for a son? A lifetime. Decade after decade of praying that God would hear their prayers and answer them and bring the son that they so longed for. And these are his, this son's father's very first words as soon as he's able to speak, looking at his son. And who is the song about? It's not about his son. It's about Jesus. How many of you are parents? I mean, I, I remember the first time my, my firstborn son was born, when Caleb was born. And I, I, I wanted to sing about him. I looked into his eyes and I thought, wow, look at what God has given to us. And Zechariah looks into the eyes of his newborn baby boy, the one that he's been praying for for, for decades, and he says, wow. Look at who my son will point to one day. The song that he sings is not about John, it's about Jesus. Which should be, I mean, if you're a parent, that's weird, right? That should strike you as just the weirdest thing to ever come along. But here's the reason that, John, that Zechariah does this. It's because Zechariah is more excited about what Jesus will do through his son than who his son is apart from Jesus. He understands right from the very beginning who is the Savior and who is his son. He's more caught up with God's son than his own. I just want to ask you, when you think of your own kids, do you primarily think of them for what they themselves represent or do you think of them for who they could represent in Jesus? See, it would be so easy for Zechariah to make his son the savior of his story, right? To say, I was barren, we didn't have a child, we're really old, and now all of a sudden we have a son. And for the the son, for his son John to be the savior of Zechariah's story, Does this sound a lot like us? See, we do this all the time. We think of our children as being the savior of our identity. We think of them as being the ones that we're going to lift up and magnify and make the most of. And so we put our identity and who we are as individuals into what our kids can do. Into who they will be. 
And we think, if, well, if they're just successful or if they just make more money than we did or if they just don't end up this way or that way or like so-and-so, then I'll be okay as a person. And what we're doing when we say that is we are saying, you are my Savior. Zechariah doesn't do that. He looks to Jesus, whom his son will point the way to as his Savior. Uh, one of the things I loved about uh, if you weren't here last week, I had someone share their story about uh, what God has been doing in their life and, and through their, their kids. And she was, Kim was sharing about uh, her daughter, Jessica, and how many of, of Kim's hopes and dreams for her daughter and what she would become were shattered. And she, she wanted to be able to tell the world, this is my daughter who's a successful teacher and who has done all these things and accomplished all this work and, and is perfect in every way. And she said, I realized over time because of the mistakes that she was making and some of those were generational sins that had been passed down to her, she couldn't look to her daughter to be the source of her identity anymore. She couldn't look to her daughter and say, you will be the one who saves me. And the, the bittersweet part about her story is that God has saved her, her daughter and is saving her daughter, is making her new. And even though there's still a lot of brokenness in her story and this is never the path that she would have chosen for her daughter, um, her daughter right now is, is, her identity is now in Christ. And she's been sent into a place where she would have never chosen to go before and has no choice but to stay there for year after year. And it's not for her glory. It's for Jesus' glory. I want to encourage you, especially this time of year, mom, dad, grandparents, uncles, aunts, don't make Christmas about your kids. They can't handle the weight of your expectations of it being all about them. Make Christmas about Jesus and invite your kids to celebrate Him. It makes all the difference in the world. Because I know, you know those of us that, that have kids, but maybe the, the, the situation isn't how we want it to, we, we look at our kids and we go, oh, I, just, I wish the situation were a little bit differently because we could have a little bit more joy. No, no, no. Have joy in the Savior. Don't put your joy on your kids because they can't handle the weight of that. Rejoice in Jesus and what He's done for you. And invite your kids to that. Not the other way around. Those of you who maybe have kids that are grown up and moved away and you're thinking, man, Christmas used to be such a time of joy, but it isn't anymore. You're still putting your hope in your kids. Put your hope in Jesus. Experience Him. Don't don't wait for the perfect experience to come along to give you the Christmas that you most hope for. The perfect Savior has come along. Put your hope in Him. And watch how he magnifies your joy just as he did for Zechariah. See, Jesus has come to save. He's come to rescue you. The, the, uh, Zechariah talks about him being the horn of salvation, which is a king who has the power to save. And he's the only one that has that. But here's the thing. He doesn't come to save us in the way that we all expect. See, we expect when God comes to save us that He's going to come to change our external circumstances. That's kind of the definition of success. I was in a bad place, in a bad way, things weren't going my way. God came in and saved and now things are going better. And at first it seems like this is kind of what Zechariah is alluding to, that that God is going to come in and save Israel from all of its enemies. And you think, Okay, we're talking about external circumstances. Israel has to deal with this Roman government and they're making life miserable for them and and they're expecting this king to come in and overthrow these oppressors to make life better. And we can often think of our lives that way and think, well, if, if if I just wasn't being oppressed by this thing, and this thing could be a person, it could be a job or the loss of a job, It could be a brokenness in our relationships. And we think, if that thing just didn't exist, or if it was better, or if it was changed, if God would just save that, then everything would be good. 
But he doesn't do that. At least that's not what Zechariah talks about in terms of salvation. Because this is what he says in verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation. So here it is. This is what salvation looks like. And this is what John has come to let people know. Here is salvation. And you need to know this. It's going to be through what? Through forgiveness. That's strange. That doesn't sound like external change. Forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I'm going to ask you this. You can give a response if you're new to us. Why do you think Zechariah focuses on forgiveness, mercy, and guidance as what it means to be saved? Why internal things and not external things? Yeah. So when Jesus comes, what does he say? He says, I've come to bring a new kingdom, but where is this kingdom going to be set up? In our hearts. There's going to be no external way to tell, at least not initially, that the kingdom has come. Where does it come? It comes in our hearts. Why does it have to come in our hearts? Because think about it. If, if, if all of our external circumstances were saved, if they were made right in all the ways that we wish that they were made right, and yet our hearts were not made right, what's going to happen? We'll ruin it again. I don't know if you know, you know the, whole, the whole story. But if you, if you wind it out and look at the, the breadth of God's story, God actually did that once. It's called the, the Ark of Noah. God lamented that the world had become such a broken place and, he, and, and, his, and his grief over the way that the world had turned out because of sin. He said, I wish I hadn't even made it. But he chooses one man to recreate the world through it. He says, I will save you and, and, and through you the, the, my creation. And so he, he saves them. And the, the world gets a restart. I mean, imagine that. All the things that are broken in your life, God in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, like that, are changed. You get a do-over. Completely refreshed. Do you ever keep reading in the story of Noah? What happens? It's one of the first things that Noah does when he gets to this new creation with his heart being unchanged. He gets drunk. He's lying around, wasting the creation that God re-gave him as a gift of grace. Why is he doing that? It's because his heart was still the same person that lived on the earth that was before. Nothing changed on the inside. Everything changed on the outside. And Noah was the same man he was before he got into the ark. See, we we so desperately want God to make the world right again. Stop the violence that's happening in our world. Fix the brokenness in our relationships. Bring back a loved one. Give us a a job again or security in terms of our income and provide for us. We want justice for these external brokennesses of our reality. But there's a problem. We fail to realize that all that external brokenness is the result of our internal sin and rebellion against God. And one of the questions I've been asking recently is, what if, what if some of the externally broken things in our circumstances are actually ways that God is using to fix the internal brokennesses of our heart? See, you need to wrestle with this question this season. At least I would encourage you to do that. What is it that you most need saving from? What do you most need saving from? There's the truth that our greatest enemy is not something out there. It's something in here. And who's going to be the one to save you? See, Zechariah, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, revealing it to his heart, realizes that his son is not going to be a sufficient savior for Zechariah. He needs another. 
Advent is actually a season that calls us to prepare our hearts to receive the right Savior. And the tragedy, I think, of the Christmas season is that we often use it as a way to run after Saviors that will never satisfy. And we think that it's the lights and the gifts and the, the food and the, the, the parties and all the other things that are supposed to be evidences of a deeper gift. We use them to replace the gift. I just want to encourage you that God wants you to receive the right gift this year. He wants you to know where real salvation is found. It's found only in Him. But it's going to happen internally and not externally. And, and here's the, the, the way that we know that is because when Zechariah starts to talk about what the salvation looks like, the very first thing that he says is, is salvation is actually receiving Forgiveness. It's funny because if you fast forward in the story, you might think that Zechariah's son, John, is going to prepare people to receive a powerful king by going into the wilderness and getting an army ready. It's back to that external thing, right? John goes into the wilderness to, to get people ready to receive Jesus, but instead of amassing an army and, and, and picking up weapons and saying, okay, let's manufacture swords and shields and tactics to overthrow the Roman Empire, instead of picking up their, their, their weapons, what does he do? He starts baptizing people in a river. And baptism is a symbol that their sins are going to be washed away by the one who would come after John. And so that's why when he's talking, he says this in, 70, in verse 77, that John is, is to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. So what's great is that John doesn't go out into the wilderness and call people there and say, take up your weapons, here we go. No, he calls people like us, weapons in hand, Weapons that we've used to defend ourselves against the saving work of God. Weapons like, I'll be a good person. And I'm too busy to think about these things. Or other people have, have brought brokenness into my heart. And we, we come with our weapons in hand. And John says, lay down your defenses. Lay them down. Lay down the things that you use to keep God at bay. So I, just, I want to ask you this morning, what are the defenses that you've been using to keep the saving work of this king out of your heart? Maybe you're, you're putting your hope and your salvation in the good things that you've done for yourself or for other people. Maybe you look to your childhood and you say, well, I had a great childhood, and because I had a great childhood, I'm a, I'm a decent person, and because I'm a decent person, I don't need this message anymore. Or maybe you look to the bad things that other people have done to you and you think because they've done that to me, that's why I am. And that's my defense against God actually coming in to forgive me of things. Maybe it's the Christmas season itself. And you use all the, the external celebration of the Christmas season to keep the Jesus who wants to set up His kingdom in your heart out. What defenses are you using? I want to invite you to lay them down. There's a better Savior. He's come to save you. And here's the thing. It's the great news of Christmas is that it, it doesn't matter what the defense has been. You might think, well, I know it's been a crummy defense. I know that I'm not good as I, as I think I, I am. But because I've put my hope in that defense, God could never, ever come to my rescue. I just want you to know you can put it down. And the reason you can is because God's forgiveness of you has nothing to do with you and what you have done. It has everything to do with who He is. The reason that God is able to forgive you has nothing to do with how you've earned it or have not earned it. 
It's because of His tender mercy. I love the way that 2 Corinthians 5.18 says it. It says, all this, He's talking about this salvation that we've received, is from who? It's from God. We don't contribute to it. We don't add to it. We simply receive it. It's from Him who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting your sins against you. He doesn't count the ways that you've held Him at bay against you. You think, why Why wouldn't He do that? Everybody else does it. Everybody else treats me that way. The reason that God doesn't hold them against you is because they've been held against someone else. It goes on in verse 21 and Paul says this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? The one who didn't deserve to have sins held against them All your sins and mine were held against Him at the cross. The reason that God is able to be merciful to you, the reason He's able to withhold punishment that we deserve is because the one who deserves mercy received the just punishment of God instead. So I want to encourage you, just as you think about this season, we often think of it as a season to try to clean up our act. Especially if you've been part of the church for a season. We think we look at the candles and we think about uh, Christmas coming and, and we think about all there is to do and we, we pile onto that list and go, okay, well now it's my job to clean up my own heart. Now it's my job to get ready or, or to say I'm sorry enough times or to, to try to earn the forgiveness that Jesus comes to give on December 25th. And please, you need to know you could never do enough, so you need not do anything, but simply receive it. I often think about the difference between Santa and Jesus this time of year. It's funny because Santa, if you think about it, he doesn't come until you're good, right? That's the whole, that's the whole message behind it, is you better be good for goodness sake, because he's coming. He's not going to come and visit you until you're good. The problem is we take that same message and we think that it applies to Jesus. Jesus doesn't come when you're good. He comes to make you good. He comes into your heart when you're not good, when you have nothing to offer Him. And He says, by my Spirit, in my forgiveness, because of my mercy, I will make you good. So please don't spend your time this season thinking about all the ways that you need to get your life in order to receive this gift. Please think about all the ways that God has been merciful to you in Christ. God forgives. Uh, One of the, the definitions of forgiveness and one that we use a lot here, we try to, it's almost like We'd like to commit this to memory because I think it's so valuable. But the definition of forgiveness is that because we've both been forgiven our debts, I need not require repayment for you for the wrong that you've done to me. Because both of our our accounts are full because the debt has been paid against you and against me, I need not require repayment from you for whatever you've done. To me. That's the definition of forgiveness. And the reason that it's such a good definition is because it, it points us to the fact that that's the way that, in which God forgave us. God didn't just forgive you because He, he, he decided not to, to think about your sin anymore or just go, oh, it'll be alright, don't worry about it. He didn't come to you and go, well... I'll forgive you, but you need to spend the rest of your life making it up to me and earning my forgiveness. No, he, he came to us and said, you need not repay me because the payment has been given. See, sin always requires payment. We all know that. 
whenever something is done to someone else, we, we know in our heart of hearts that someone has to pay for whatever has been done. Now, I have uh, a couple two-year-olds in our house, and um, they know when something happens against them, when they have been sinned against, what is the first thing that they do? They exact repayment. <laughs> it may be in the form of, like, you hit me, so I will bite you. It may be in the form of, you hit me, so mom. Payment will be made. And they know it from the time that they're very small. We know it in the world. We look at the world in its brokenness, and we think about what other people have done to us, and we go, someone's got to pay for that. We know it. And so here's the deal. We'll, we'll either look to someone else to be the payment for us and we'll say it's their fault that it's broken and we'll accept, expect them to make the ultimate payment for the wrong that's been done to us. Or we'll, if we can't find a good enough payment out in the world, we'll think, well, I need to be the one to pay it. And so we'll try to do it in the form of guilt or shame because we're looking to ourselves to pay for the sin that's been done, or the sins that we've committed. You can never pay enough, nor are you expected to. Nor can anyone else pay enough, nor does God expect them to. It's funny, I mean, we think about that even in terms of what's going on in the world today. We think somebody's got to pay for what's been done. For the, even with these mass shootings, it's like it, someone's to blame, Someone's got it wrong. And so we point the finger at somebody saying if they would just take the blame for it, then everything would go back to normal. And so we point the finger at Muslims or we point the finger at gun makers or we point the finger at lobbyists or we point the finger at politicians or whoever the case might be. And we think if they would just make payment for what's been done, then we would get back on track again. See, every one of us needs to know that we always look to something or someone to make payment for sin. And if, if that's you, which I think it's all of us, then the name Jesus is good news to you today. Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. It's good news because He came into this world to take that payment that only He can take. And so you have a choice today. You have a choice this morning. You can either continue to feel the weight of your own sin or try to make someone else feel the weight of it. You can try to say to yourself, you know, I'll make it up next time or I'll do better or I'll cover it over or I'll pretend it didn't happen or I'll live in denial or I'll blame someone else. But the problem is that no one else can carry the weight of that sin on this planet because no one else was designed to if you don't place it on Jesus, it's going to have to be paid over and over and over and over again. The good news of Jesus Christ is that He came to die once for sin. It's a sufficient payment. And when you know it, when you believe it, when you rest in it, guess what starts to happen? You start to be able to actually forgive yourself and other people. Because you're not demanding payment anymore. So salvation means forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness. Salvation also means God's presence with us. Uh, Luke 78 and 79 say this, the rising sun, which is kind of a poetic way of talking about God's presence with us. Think of the like light coming into the darkness, which is God coming into the midst of a dark place. The rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So I just want to remind you that when Jesus died for us, He did not just die to forgive us of our sins. That's the first step, but it's not the only one. It would be a shame, wouldn't it, if Jesus came, paid the enormous weight for God to be reconciled to us, for us to walk with Him again. And we just said to Him, well, thank you for the forgiveness, but now I reject your presence in my heart. I mean, it would be like you 
paying thousands and thousands of dollars to, to go and travel to see someone that you love dearly and for them to go, wow, I can't believe that you paid all that debt to be here. And then they shut the door on you. See, Jesus died not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us so that he could actually come and live in us by his spirit. It's funny because if you think of Zechariah's story, what's the high watermark of his story before his son is born? It's the fact that he gets to go into the temple and burn incense before God's very presence. I don't know if you realize this about the way that the, the system worked, but he was a priest and the priest got to go in uh, to the temple regularly, but it was only one time per year that you were selected by the casting of lots to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, which was the place where God dwelled. And he got the, the, the grace of that gift to be able to go into that very place and burn incense before the very presence of God. And you think, well, how can, I mean, how can your professional life get better than that if you're a priest, right? I mean, think of the highest thing you could possibly achieve in your field. And that was it for him. And he walks away and now he's given this song and one of the things that he sings is, no, 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 that... What I experienced in the temple there, even with an angel appearing to me, I mean, how, how, how incredible would that be, right? Even with all that, it pales in comparison to the rising of the sun, which is dawning right now through Jesus. See, God wants not just to forgive you, He wants to be in you, to be with you, and I, Christmas is one of those weird times when it's like one of the loneliest points of the whole year, when it should be the most joyous. Particularly if you find it a season where you, you tend to be alone a lot. I just want to remind you, you're, you're not alone. And you need not be alone this Christmas. You could literally have the the dawning of the Son of God come into your heart so that you'll never be alone, regardless of the circumstances around you. I don't know to you, that, to me that sounds like real salvation. Regardless of what's going on around me. If I could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was living and breathing in my heart at every moment, regardless of who comes in and out of my life, regardless of what's done to me or what I do to other people, that God, through, through His Spirit and Jesus, said, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. Sometimes I think we think that, yeah, God is with me, but it's dependent on me. Like, yeah, He's secured His presence in my heart by grace because of what Jesus did, but now it's my job to keep up the, the game is to be a good enough person that God continues to dwell in me. No, that's not the way that it works. The way that you came to faith is the way that you continue in faith. God, God's presence was a gift of His grace to begin with. It will continue to be a gift of His grace for you to receive over and over again. And so that means that even if you had the worst day yesterday, even if you're like, God could never... He could never dwell in my heart again after that. This morning, you can. This morning, you can actually say, good morning to Him. Thank you. I receive you again. I need you again. Come fill me again. See, if you've been forgiven, then nothing, absolutely nothing is standing between you and Him. Isn't that amazing that God would continue to do that for you? I love the one of the things that I'm reminded of over and over again is the fact that Jesus joined us in the midst of that stuff of life. He actually knows what it's like to be you. That's the whole reason he came in the form of a helpless baby. It was God's way of saying, I'm coming to you in, in humility and in gentleness. And I'll actually grow up among you and I'll, I'll be just as needy as you are so that you'll know the kind of love that I have for you, which is a, a tender and compassionate 
an understanding and long-suffering kind of love. I'm a God who didn't come here to condemn you for all the things that you fail to do. I'm a God who comes and understands your heart. I've come to actually feel the weight of your sin and brokenness so that I can enter into it and take it on myself. See, I, I, just, I don't know, I just sense that there's, there's many of us here that are keeping God at a, at a distance and God does not want to be at a distance for you today. He's not far from your life. He's close and he is personal. And he wants you to know that. Lastly, and it'll just wrap up quickly with this, it, salvation means that we are receiving forgiveness. It means receiving his presence, but it also means that we're receiving his guidance. And we're receiving his guidance not for us and for our aims, just, not just to make our life better, but we're receiving it ultimately for God's glory so that God would be shown through our lives. Luke one seventy four. Zechariah says this, that this is what salvation means. It's to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So, I mean, think about this. That how are we saved? We're saved because of the forgiveness of Jesus. What does it mean to be saved? It means to walk with Jesus, to have him present in our life. Why are we saved? It's not for us so that we could serve Jesus, this King who's come. See, God has come to forgive us of our sins, to live in us, but He's come to do that so that our life could be about Him and not about us. I love that, that you, you would expect that Zechariah's prayer would be more about his son and, uh, and he's, his prayer is more about what Jesus is going to be through his son. And if you know John's story at all, that becomes true. John has the opportunity to make his, my, his life, make much of Jesus. In fact, one of the things that he says before he died was that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. When you're thinking about your hopes and your dreams for your life, when you're thinking about your prayers for your children. I want to encourage you to think along the same lines. One of the things that God revealed to us as we were even choosing the name of our second son, Ethan, was um, a prayer that has been kind of burned into my mind and I, I, God brings it to mind often uh, to pray for them, especially when I, I start to think that their behavior is uh, for my good. <laughs> when, when I start to think that they've been a, a gift to me for me, and when they're not living up to my expectations as a dad of what, how they should be acting or, or treating me or, or whatever the case might be, God often brings this prayer to mind in Psalm 89.15 and says, Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. That's a great definition of success. And what it means to be saved is to, is to walk in the light of the, of the presence of God in such a way that our lives acclaim the one that we walk with. To acclaim something just means to lift it higher than you. So when, when, when a, a, an army would go into battle, they would have trumpets and banners and the, the banners and the trumpets would acclaim the, the goodness and the greatness of their king. They say, we march under the banner of this king and what he represents. And the mightier the army, you'd go, man, the mightier the king. And with us, it's a little reversed, right? It's the, the, how humble and, and, and meek we are that points to the greatness of our king and what he does through us. just want you to know, God through his spirit is saying to you this morning, I want to I make your life about so much more than you. I want to empower you to serve me. I want to empower you to make much of me. Now here's the thing, and this leads us back to where we started. What do you think happens when more and more people around the world are forgiven of sin, filled with God's presence, 
and guided by his spirit to make much of Jesus. What starts to happen on the earth when all those things become true of more and more and more people all across the world, in the U.S. and in the Middle East and in Asia and in Africa and in Europe, what do you think would start to happen if more and more people that becomes true of because Jesus is saving them? Peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom God's favor rests. Yeah, God's glory comes and covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. It becomes a place that we dream of and long for. The place that we wish that God would come and make true. Do you see the way that God is doing it? God is not silent. He's not inactive. He's not distant and removed from our prayers. He's here. He's saving people all over the world and he's having his will borne out over and over and over again. And the the brokenness that we see in the world is the remaining result of the places in which God is still at work in the process of saving people. I don't know about you, but as I've thought about the brokenness of the world, this understanding of what it looks like to be saved has started to change the way that I pray for the world. Because, yeah, I'll I'll pray for the families of the people that were affected by tragedy, and I'll, I'll want them to be restored, and I believe that God wants those same things. But one of the things that I've begin to pray for is to is for God to come and save those who would wish to do us harm to give them a knowledge of salvation so that they know that they don't need to do what they're about to do for God to come in and rescue even those who would be our enemies as God has rescued us to not count their sins against them but to count them against Jesus and to give them a knowledge of salvation that's found in no other name I just want to encourage you, just as you think about praying for the world, let this knowledge of salvation change the way that you pray. For the world, for your family, for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's come to save. Thank you that, like Zechariah, even though it seemed like Generations had passed without you saying a word. You were preparing to do something that we couldn't imagine. Lord, if we, even if, if we don't know you this morning, if there's any who haven't begun the first step of receiving the forgiveness of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you draw them to yourself. God, help us to experience again the gift of your presence. And change us, God, that we might be agents of reconciliation and peace in the world. We ask this not for our good, just, not just to make our lives better, but so that the King could be shown for who he is. We pray in his name.